the joy of this business is the thrill of being able to see that your company had a hand in creating this this image that is now around the world that half a million people are wearing it. The Uniformer. Insights and interviews into the people and companies that drive the markets for uniforms, image apparel, and public safety equipment. The Uniformer is a production of the North American Association of Uniform Manufacturers and Distributors, the NAUMD. We're here today with Chris Colopy. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing well, thank you, Rick. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. Of course. I'm excited about this one because you have this in-depth international experience that I have not, honestly, after a couple of decades in the uniform industry, uh, been as exposed to. There is a unique experience in our little niche world (laughs) that um, operates very differently between local, regional, national, and then international, and they all have nuance, and I'm excited to kind of dive into that with you today. You have uh, a variety of experience, and even though you were joking with me about writing that autobiography, I I encourage you to do it, Chris. (laughs) Uh, Let's start by talking about where you're currently at. So you are uh, vice president at a company uh, called IEA Global, and tell us a little bit about that and what you're doing. Sure, sure. Um, IEA is a is an Asia-based company, about 30 years old, an international company that up until a few months ago just had a footprint in Europe and in Asia, but nothing in North America. The folks there approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in launching their business, their brand in, in North America. And there's no time like a pandemic to <laughs> launch a new business. So why not? But, but interestingly, the reception has been phenomenal. Uh, we've found that the clientele in, in North America have been very receptive to our message. Um, we've got a, um, you know, as I mentioned, a 30-year history, but it's with um, a real blue-chip client base um, at kind of two ends of the spectrum with a significant footprint in the quick-service restaurant industry with clients like McDonald's and Burger King and Pizza Hut. And then at the opposite end of the industry, in, in fine tailored programs for Hyatt Hotels, Peninsula Hotels, Shangri-La, uh, Mandarin Oriental. So it gives us a lot of credibility in, in both ends of, um, really all ends of the, the spectrum from a product standpoint. So those those name droppable companies, which are awesome, are ones that you're saying they're already working with on other continents, and their presence was minimal, let's say, with uh, that level of brand in the U.S. They bring Chris in and say, "Okay, now we want to talk to uh, the same customers that you know we've been working with uh, in in other continents." as well as new ones, or how, how did that go down? Well, the only, the only footprint in North America that IEA had um, was with Burger King. They had um, a, a, a piece of the, the current uh, domestic Burger King business, and we're servicing that from Asia, which 
the way the Burger King program operates, it's certainly feasible to do that. However, we were just instrumental over the last nine or 10 months in developing a new brand or new rebrand uniform program for, for Burger King that will launch um, in the next few months. So it made sense to expand on that presence and, and see where else we could make an impact in the industry, both in the, in the quick service restaurant industry, fast casual, um, and then on through the tailored apparel programs that may be um, up for review at various airlines, car rental companies, that type of thing. It's been a wonderful journey the last six months in terms of of bringing that message forward to potential clients in the area and um, in North America and seeing the reception that we're getting. It's it's a very um, it's very refreshing to be so well received by potential clients um, in North America and um, obviously that's due in, in large part to the reputation of our business that, you know, we have this 30 year history and the longevity that we have with our clients, existing clients averages about 10 or 12 years, which is very unusual in our business. As, as you, you, you may know, it can be, can be transient where clients are going back out to RFP every two years or so and business will flip suppliers here and there. So I'm very proud of the fact that from a business standpoint, we've been able to maintain a, a, uh, a decades-long um, tenure with most of our major clients. Speaks well to our ability to, to service our business. So this is Rick saying this, not Chris, but I think you're being modest. I think <laughs> that in part you're getting a warm reception because you, my friend, are a known uh, um, force within the industry. So many of the accounts that you're likely calling on heard of you through Brookhurst. Um, you know, weren't these many of these accounts were ones that Brookhurst might have had at, at some point and or had talked to Brookhurst. So tell us what your experience, I mean, you spent how many years were you at Brookhurst and how has that experience played into, you know, this current activities, do you think? I was in Brookhurst for almost a quarter of a century. And then um, I, I will tell you both my experience at Brookhurst and then subsequently at Twin Hill were great proving grounds for developing relationships with, with clients across uh, multiple industries. We had a great run at Brookhurst. Um, I um, maybe just backing up a little bit. I was introduced to the uniform business at at um, Brookhurst via some friends because I was um, actually graduated at, with a degree in psychology and was working as a social worker. Found out rather quickly that that was never going to pay the bills. And while it was wonderful work, it was very empowering. It was very rewarding. It could be frustrating. I was working in the juvenile justice system um, as a social worker. Um, it, it wasn't going to pay the bills. So some friends introduced me to the uniform business. I knew nothing about it and had never sold anything before. So 
this was my my virgin experience with that type of an arrangement. And um, I think with that ignorance became the power to, or the fearlessness to just go after anything. There was no program that was too big. Why not give them a call? So through the experience over 25 years at, at Brookhurst, uh, you know, we were doing business with major car rental companies, major airlines. That all was a great, a great training ground uh, in terms of learning the business, making some wonderful friends who, quite honestly, to this day, many of them I'm still in touch with and, and close to. I think one of my best friends was one of my first clients. The, the uniform buyer, actually was the vice president of, of procurement at National Car Rental. And it was the first program I sold uh, when I was at, at, um, at uh, Brookhurst. The, the other very important memory from take, that I took from Brookhurst, two of them really, Brookhurst was like a family. Um, the longevity of the key team was easily 10 to 20 years. And I also, in the course of my, my tenure at Brookhurst, met my best, my best friend who became my wife. That certainly um, leaves a, a, a soft spot in my heart. But with that... Um, I don't know. Did, do, do we need to, did we need to talk to HR about that first? Uh, or you know, was that a... Well, this, this was at a point in time when... Um, Things were a little bit different, Rick. Things were a little looser. Yeah, just a little bit. Yes, right. Uh, yes. But none, nonetheless, <laughs> um, I did. Um, I, I was offered an opportunity to leave Brookers to to join a fledgling division of the men's warehouse called Twin Hill. Men's warehouse was looking for uh, an adjunct to, to their current business model. I think this was in the like. 2003, 2004, they were recognizing, I think, even at that point, a softening in men's formal wear, men's suiting, and were looking for an adjunct to the business and felt that corporate apparel and uniforms could be that. So I joined uh, Twin Hill, again, with some trepidation. Um, you know, I just was at a point where I had our oldest son was just getting ready to start college. Our younger son was going to be starting two years later. So what better time to embark on a brand new, you know, career when you're having to pay college tuition for two boys? But nonetheless, we had some great early success at Brookhurst or at uh, Twin Hill, rather, that kind of propelled us forward. Um, within a year of my joining, our, our first conquest as a client was UPS. So really counterintuitive to what people. I think to what the industry thought, um, they figured, you know, here's this guy with a lot of tailored uniform experience from Brookhurst coming to Twin Hill. They're going to go after tailored programs, particularly as a division of men's warehouse and out of the gates, you know, our first win is with UPS, basically this iconic industrial uniform program. So the, the UPS, um, we initially were sharing the UPS program. Um, with another supplier, and then uh, about two years in, became sole source, and and Twin Hill was sole source on that program up until about a year ago. Um, so it was uh, 
a very um, it, it was a great launch program for for the brand at at uh, Twin Hill, and it was a good door opener for us in terms of of getting into other business opportunities. That ultimately led us to opportunities with car rental companies, with major fast food companies. Um, we launched just prior to my my leaving uh, uh, Twin Hill. We launched a program for 100,000 American Airlines uh, American Airlines employees around the world, um, which was um, which was a significant undertaking. So, mm-hmm, yeah. But it's been the 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 key element at both Brookhurst and at um, Twin Hill was this entrepreneurial spirit that there weren't any guardrails. You know, basically you could go out and if if the program made sense economically and functionally for our company, we could go after it and pursue it. And that freedom to pursue business sort of an on on an on an unshackled basis gave us a lot of freedom in terms of and a lot of propellant in terms of going after uh, potential new business opportunities. That's really interesting. To just, uh, I have a couple of questions regarding that. Then, uh, did it go both ways? Like some sometimes a uniform company grows to a certain point that their floor becomes something that then salespeople are a little frustrated with because oh, we don't talk to anybody that spends less than two hundred thousand dollars a year on uniforms. So, did it go the other way too? Like you found an interesting hospitality chain that only had three or four locations, but, you know, you saw potential for them to grow. So you could go ahead and bring that account in. Um, or was it more you're saying you could basically guerrilla sell? You could say, of course, we can handle 100,000, you know, uh, new employees within a nine month rollout. At, at both Brooker stand at Twin Hill, um, more so at Twin Hill, we had an extensive catalog program that allowed us to basically serve that wider market. So we could take on some of those smaller programs and service them from our catalog program, and then um, also use that catalog program to augment our approach to some of the larger programs. And although most of the larger programs are really bespoke in terms of design, but um, ultimately at at Twin Hill, we launched a um, a regional sales force that was basically charged with pursuing catalog programs up to about a half a million dollar threshold, and then the national accounts team would take over programs that were above that or bespoke programs that were above that. Do you did you ever end up with a rule of thumb about when an account? crosses the line from stock and it, it you know in the case of Brookhurst or men's warehouse yes they have stock because they already are filling shelves with uh, items but you know there's the VF image wares there's Sanmar there's Edwards there's you know there's plenty of quality stock providers um so what was for you as a salesperson in this industry where was the breakpoint when you knew I should start talking about bespoke, I should talk custom at this point. Well, a, a lot of that goes back to understanding the the customer voice 
understanding their brand and their brand voice and how can we as a purveyor best represent that brand voice in an apparel program and maybe that a client has excuse me such unique requirements from either a product standpoint a fabric standpoint or coloration um, that it it couldn't be accommodated with our our catalog line or they wanted to be they really wanted a unique image that was uniquely xyz airline or 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 that type of thing so the catalog was always a good way to backfill portions of the program in in major bespoke programs but generally um the, the key the tipping point is understanding that brand voice and understanding what's going to serve that client the best yeah i i like that answer i like that answer a lot because you reversed it from the worry of the supplier's problems to what will actually solve the problems of the client what you know the customer the end user whatever you know cultural reference we want to use for them but uh you know so if if a client comes to a uniform provider and says this is the budget you got to work within that could dictate certain things um, but more what you're saying is you know looking at what that voice is and sometimes that voice isn't um, style there that that isn't what's important to that company. exactly that you know it may solely solely be you know that they they have a performance issue that you know needs to be solved on a regular basis exactly. that's they're a, a utility company that is rarely seen their their employees just aren't seen they're a utility company that's really kind of in the background they don't have you know a, a public facing division that um requires a bespoke tailored look. (laughs) I imagine the answer is going to be pretty similar to what you just told me, but can you speak a little bit about the differences between then uh, selling locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally? Like I said, I was curious about. Yes, absolutely. Um, We positioned ourselves both at Brookhurst and at Twin Hill more more appropriately at Twin Hill, I might add, to be a one-stop global solution for our clients. Um, and that's certainly the case now with, with IEA. Um, you know, we're able to position ourselves as a truly global solution for our clients with, you know, mature, currently mature distribution in, in Bordeaux, France, distribution in, in Asia, distribution in North America. So we, we truly can cover the world. Again, it really goes back to understanding what that client requires. Because if you're dealing with a major airline, for example, that's based in North America, at least 20 to 25% of that employee work group is going to be based outside of the country, um, depending on that airline's, that airline's route structure and makeup. So you have to be able to be prepared to, as a supplier to create that seamless image program for them globally. 
And that means being able to put that same uniform on the gate agents that are working in Tokyo that you have on the gate agents that are working in Des Moines or the flight attendants that are working in London and the flight attendants that are working in San Francisco. So that presents its own set of challenges in terms of, of sizing, in terms of, of expectations uh, for, for fit, um, local customs, and that type of thing. But understanding all of that and, and being able to speak to your client intelligently and say to them, we understand the variables here. We understand that there are, for example, religious requirements within some cultures that we need to design into the program uh, hijab to be worn at the counter with certain work groups that we need to design um, a longer skirt that's to be worn with certain work groups to accommodate religious requirements or cultural requirements. Um, I will tell you every once in a while, you, a curveball will, will be thrown into the, into the mix. Um, I remember when I was at, at Brookhurst, we got well down the road designing a, a new um, accessory program for uh, a major a major airline, and we're featuring a a trim on a blouse that was um, that was of a color that, while it had no cultural meaning necessarily in the United States, in Asia it was significant of mourning or, or mourning a, a, a lost loved one. So it, it became, it was a very quick lesson in terms of doing your homework from a design standpoint and understanding how that perspective design would resonate across multiple cultures. Because the worst thing that could happen would be to um, here you're in a service industry and you're putting product on someone who's going to be, you know, caring for passengers paying $20,000 round trip to, to fly first class and they're dressed like they're going to a funeral. You know, not a good look. So you're, you're reminding me of a, outside of our industry, Gerber ran into an issue that they did not, I don't remember the country, uh, but they did not understand why their product just would not sell at all in that country. Just like zip, nothing. Turned out by having a picture of the baby on the jar, that community, that population thought it was made of babies. Wow. Quite literally. It was that like literal of like just a misunderstanding that if you put a picture on it, they will think it's made sure. of that. and. You know, they didn't call the government to say somebody's feeding us babies. Instead, they just said, well, I'm not buying that. It's made of babies. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's an urban legend or true. Yeah, but, interesting. Uh, that was the story I had heard. Um, it, and what I'm what I'm fascinated by, Chris, what you're saying is 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we couldn't have had this conversation my understanding when I first got into this industry that something like a Burger King would have to be done by half a dozen different countries, uh, you know, companies in half a dozen different locations around the world because 
a single source could not have handled all of the variables that you're talking about. They would have had to source fabrics, you know, based on the comfort that those wearers, you know, in that region, uh, they wouldn't have been able to handle um, the, the cultural, you know, uh, appropriation. <laughs> they wouldn't have been able to, you know, um, and just pure logistics, right? Just think about just the ability to have an instant meeting with stakeholders you know, in different parts of the world, like we're doing right now, recording this on, on Zoom, you know, it's, it's, you know, that was all just not possible to coordinate. And so it's fascinating to me that you're saying now a single source such as IEA Global can now say, wait, no, we can now bring this all together. You're going to now have a much more, how did you call it, um, a brand voice, you know, that voice will be a much better expressed on a global scale um, with accommodations for nuance, yes, or for um, uh, employee allowances that, you know, need to be considered culturally. But it's it's amazing that we can now think of this as a, uh, a single source across global companies. Sure. Con consistency is critically important to, the, to these organizations so that they want to put forth the fact that the experience you have in a McDonald's restaurant or a Hyatt hotel or a Burger King location or a Peninsula hotel in Beverly Hills will be the same as it is in Hong Kong. Um, from the ambiance, from the greetings that you receive, from the service you receive from the employee, from the training the employee gets, to the way the employee projects the brand, which is obviously akin to to what they're wearing you know i mean just just last week we had a touch base meeting with our client that involved i think we had four different continents on the phone at the same time we were europe asia um north america and i guess it was three europe asia and north america now it does require some of us to get up a little bit earlier or or that type of thing to be able to accommodate those calls but that that's part of the um, the joy of this business, in my opinion, is the thrill of being able to see that your company had a hand in, you know, creating this this image that is now around the world that half a million people are wearing it. It's an exciting, even after so many years in this business, it's it's still an exciting rush to to see that happen. So we've got this technology that has allowed for what you and I, in some sort of geeky way, just admitted we're both kind of excited about that it can happen, right? That, hey, now one company can supply this global entity with, you know, 500 points of presence in, you know, 30 countries and, you know, and, um, and that's awesome. What I imagine is a challenge, uh, inventory yes. is logistics, because now, you know, it used to be okay, well, if I'm just selling basically in the lower 48 states of the United States, <laughs> you know, I can have a warehouse centrally located somewhere in the Midwest and pretty much reach everybody in 48 sure. hours. Um, or I may need, you know, a warehouse on the East Coast and a warehouse on the West Coast just to ensure I've got that, you know, 24 or 48 hour, you know, mark when needed. But you have a totally unique challenge. Um, and aside from throwing tons of money at it and having products sitting on shelves in 20 different places, you know, deep and wide, 
how does a company approach it? And we don't have to give away trade secrets of sure. IEA, uh, but I'm curious how a company approaches this at this stage because that's such a massive amount of inventory or is just in time capable uh, you know, or, or doable in our industry? Just in time becomes uh, important when you get into a steady state with a client. But from the launch phase through the first year or so, um, it's a challenge. You, you really need to be on top of your game to, and, and be very flexible in order to launch those programs appropriately. Because particularly when you have programs where there is choice involved for either the franchisee or the employee, and you could make educated guesses up front in terms of which products will be chosen by the employee, but I could virtually guarantee you will be wrong, uh, and, and something will go will go askew. Um, one of the big benefits um, that we have at I Ex- excuse the pun will go askew. Excuse the pun. <laughs> exactly. <right>? <laughs> <laughs> they are quicker than I am today, Rick. <clears throat> one of the big benefits we have at IEA that I am really proud of is we own our own factories in Asia. So. Um, that allows us the ability to to do a lot in terms of of holding back stock of fabric uh, on site, so we can convert quickly. We can real, realign priorities within those factories to to convert product quickly when we may have missed forecast in some area or another. Um, that's not to say it's not without its challenges. It certainly is, um, but the The key there is to have a robust program management function that is communicating with that client on a global basis to understand what's happening with new store openings or new employee hiring, um, furloughs, store closings, um, any trend changes in in the food service industry. Limited time offers can create fluctuation in usage where a T-shirt may be introduced to a program that is is underpinning a, a limited time offer that the that the client is putting forth to their customers, and you have to realize that by infusing that T-shirt into the program, it's going to affect other products in the program uh, from a usage standpoint. So it's really all about communication and planning. Uh, so we've taken great pains, uh, really across my career, to find folks and put them in program management positions who are really astute in terms of communication, follow-up, understanding um, the organizational aspects of a program, understanding timelines, so that they can impress upon the client from a global standpoint, this is the information we need in order to be successful, successful for you. And we've had great success doing that. That's not to say that there isn't the occasional bump in the road. Um, and that's where I think having our own factories and, and holding back stock of, of fabric or even holding finished goods inventory in our factories on behalf of the client to help even out those, those bumps in the usage um, can be a big advantage. I would imagine that's a, the key advantage, yes. yes. And I mean, would you say that in the coming years, 
will um, will inventory be the differentiator? Will the ability to be uh, that vertical onto uh, itself that you're describing um, be the key factor? Will uh, logistics will will design will design prevail as you know who wins in the next few years in our industry? What's your crystal ball? Well, I, I think it's going to be a com- it's certainly a combination of things. I think there's certainly certainly elements that are that are becoming increasingly important in our industry in terms of design. Uh, sustainability is a huge huge issue and a huge ask all of our clients now, which is, which is really gratifying to see. So our design teams um, work very hard to infuse sustainability into our programs wherever possible. That becomes a bit of a slippery slope sometimes because some sustainability elements can actually increase cost to the client. So it's, it's a good test of, of their metal in terms of whether the client is is truly passionate about sustainability because it's going to cost you a few pennies more. But for the most part, clients have been very embracing of, of, of that. I, I do think from an inventory management standpoint, the advent of fast fashion um, with the H&Ms of the world, you know, basically introducing new products so quickly into retail, that's seeping into our industry now where our clients want to know, you know, want to be able to refresh that program much faster and much more often than they have before. And they don't want to be writing a big check for obsolete inventory to be able to introduce that new item. So, hey, what a headache. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it, it, it can be. But it, again, it all falls back to that, that inventory management piece and helping the client understand that, okay, we can do this, we can dovetail old inventory and new launch, but here are the sacrifices that may need to be made in terms of, of doing that. Um, you, know, you, you wind the inventory down while you're, you're winding up this new item, and it may <clears throat> create some need for a substitution of some sort in that wind-down item while you're waiting for that new item to be, to be launched. That's the most prudent way to do it financially. Um, some clients will still say, don't care. I, I want to introduce this new item. Just do it now and write off the old inventory. Although I, I, I do think that's becoming an increasingly more rare um, circumstance. Clients are very fiscally um, <clears throat> fiscally conservative. You know, I think if we go back and remember that uniforms and corporate apparel are non-revenue generating aspects of a client's business. Right. And so to that extent, they, they really want, don't want that to be a big part of their P&L. So to the extent that we can control that for them, um, so much the better. Yeah, that's really interesting um, <clears throat> points you're making about how fast fashion is affecting um, our, our industry. Uh, and <clears throat> in particular, you know, how, how fast then a company wants to have a fresh look, right? It's always this press-worthy event when a brand shifts their look. But given how quickly we see things come and go from the marketplace now as consumers, you know, so it's not just the availability of, of inexpensive clothing. 
It's the rapidness with which that style or that color or that, you know, that trend comes and goes. And of course, thank you to Amazon, you know, that I can get it, you know, like that day. <laughs> I can have it now. Exactly. So uh, that's a double double jeopardy for for our our industry. On the other hand, the optimist in me says, oh, good. That's great, actually, because now, right, we've always been in an annuity business. We don't make a product that we have to guarantee for 30 years and show up and service it 20 years and not necessarily have the parts to fix that machine. We make a product exactly. that if you wash it 40 times, we kind of recommend you replace the darn thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. Um, you know, that's uh, so on the other hand, what, an, what a great opportunity to say, you know what? Let's keep this as our core and yeah, let's rotate these, you know, 10 items on a regular basis and add that flair that, you know, can just continually to change with the trends. And um, as long as you and your client can can be predictive enough that neither of you gets hurt by it, then then uh, great. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Hey, would you um, would you recommend this industry? to someone if if one of those one of those two wonderful sons of yours were just graduating college now chris would you say hey son you should look at uh, the uniform industry they, they would say as long as we don't have to work for you dad um, <laughs> no i i would absolutely recommend this industry i think that there is um there is an excitement about it there is a um there is an adventure about it. There is a, it's almost like putting a Rubik's cube together sometimes it's because there are so many elements that go into making a successful program. And I think when you get to the end and you see that program launched and you, you know, you wipe your forehead and say, we did it. Um, you know, you, all of the effort that you put into a robust e-commerce tool, and all of the effort that you put into product development and testing and all of the effort that you put into product safety to ensure that that product is safe for the employee to wear um, pays big dividends, even to the extent where at times the, the launch of a new program can seep into popular culture. Um, I remember for a quick story. We launched a program for a major airline and I just happened to be, and this was the first time this, this major airline had launched had launched a new uniform in probably two decades. So it was long overdue. And I happened to be watching The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. And he does thank you notes. And one of his thank you notes was, Dear Airline, thank you for launching new uniforms for your employees for the first time in 20 years. Now will you take the ashtrays out of the airplane that we haven't been able to use in 40 years? So it's, you know, as silly as that is, it, it just is an indication that the efforts that the team collectively put together can reflect in other areas across popular culture. I love that. Yeah, I've always uh, tried to be aware of where we're influencing 
the fashion and apparel world and where the fashion and apparel world is influencing us. And there is a cyclical nature to how we've been going back and forth more than people realize. One of the amusing things uh, to me is when I walk into the Gap or um, Old Navy and I see shirts that are in the style of a fake uniform. Like, and that's yeah. something that there's you know, like, it's like a thing up here. That's a logo, you know, and it's, you know, exactly. or the, the fake name of a, of a company. And, you know, it just amuses me that, you know, <laughs> um, absolutely. But, but I think in terms of, of the future of the business, I think that I would wholeheartedly recommend um, young people graduating college to, to look at the industry, because I think that it, it, it it can so well serve us as an industry and our clients to have that fresh view coming in, whether it's from a technology standpoint, particularly from a design standpoint, it just gives a, a fresh outlook to what what's available in the marketplace and, and what we can, what we can do for our, our clients. Love it. Wonderful. Chris, it was a real pleasure today to talk about, the industry, the programs that you've worked on over time. It sounds like there's really exciting things happening with um, IEA Global and how you're able now to, you know, start really changing the landscape for a single source, you know, global uh, opportunity for companies to to have. And um, I, I really appreciate the time, Rick. It's This is an industry that I'm passionate about and um, I, I enjoyed our chat.